Ian, our friend, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me, Poya. Yeah, absolutely. Ian, you've already listened to a couple of episodes and and you know that we get started with the personal bio as well as the business bio. I don't even have for a baseball card or anything. So (laughs) let's, let's let you kick it off. Yeah, of course. Uh, before I get started, I just want to uh, say that I've been enjoying it and hopefully I can live up to the rest of the guests. They're, uh, they were phenomenal. Uh, so, all right, let's kick it off, man. Uh, I think I'm going to give you the weirdest intro uh, you'll ever have in Uncharted and Eclectic. You ready for this? I can't wait. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to focus on like the Uncharted piece uh, initially, I think. Uh, do you remember that show? Um, I think it was called Escape from Danamora. It was, it was done by Ben Stiller. Yes. It was on Showtime. Yes, yes. So uh, for those of you that haven't seen it, it was about a prison escape in upstate New York. And that, that, was, that prison is 10 miles from my house where I grew up. It's in the middle of nowhere. When I mean like uncharted, I mean like Adirondack Park, middle of nowhere. Uh, this is like the prison they send the worst criminals in New York City to because even if they escape, there's literally nowhere else to go. Um, so anyways, I bring this up because I, I wouldn't consider myself someone kind of born into the tech scene, really, or, or uh, Silicon Valley. I think uh, I grew up in a rural blue collar town where hard work means like farming, construction, and that's exactly how I grew up. My dad owns a, a third generation construction company. Um, and while my friends were kind of during the summers out partying, I was getting up at like 4 a.m., driving two hours to a job, building a bridge, paving a road, uh, working 12 hours, driving back, doing it all over again. Um, so that was kind of like my upbringing, uh, and and yeah, so back to the prison, right? Uh, my dad's company got a job in this prison. Um, and my dad being my dad gave me the crappiest job known to man, which at that time was repairing, uh, sewer pipes in the prison. So there I am in this gigantic hole repairing the sewer pipe. I'm sure you can imagine what happens next. The pipe burst uh, or sprung a leak and, there I am, covered in shit, surrounded by cockroaches, and I'm sure your listeners can smell that across the uh, the podcast. But um, this is kind of like at that point, I in my head, and I still remember it to this day. Uh, this was the point where I was like, "All right, going to college, I'm going to work my ass off. I'm going to work harder than anybody else. So I'm never in the sewer ever again." I and mean, believe it or not, that vision still haunts me to this day, and it still motivates me to work harder and harder and harder at anything I'm doing. Talk, talk about a motivate, motivating story. Yeah. Um, I, I do actually want to take a second uh, because when you wake up with that kind of work ethic, right, whether it's your dad's or like your family members are just seeing those like values of hard work, mm-hmm. getting up at 4 a.m. instilled in you. Um, like how did that shape you who you are today? Like I'm just trying to understand like how's – how's that influenced you like the, those surroundings that in that, like being in that environment has shaped you today. Yeah. What do you want to instill in your like kids, frankly, as a result of that? Uh, first and foremost, I think nothing's given to you in this world. Uh, that sounds very cliche, but it's, that's very much true. So if you want something, you got to work for it. There's no shortcuts. You have to put in the time you have to put in the reps. Um, I was just actually watching uh, the last dance, uh, Michael Jordan's kind of story and, and how when he transitioned to baseball, 
the guy would just put in more reps than anybody else. Uh, he would stay there, you know, after practice, was there before practice, putting in just reps in the batting cage, right? Um, that's, that's a thing that I think not a lot of people see um, behind the scenes, right? Where everybody just sees Michael Jordan being this fantastic, talented person, but that guy probably just even basketball or baseball has put in more reps than any other player in the history of, of basketball or baseball, maybe not baseball, but basketball for sure. So I think that's the first piece is kind of um, nobody's going to hand it to you. So you got to work for it. Uh, and I've always felt uh, like I'm on the outside at some of these things because I started from like a non tech scene. I just feel like I have to, learn as much as possible and grow quicker and just you have to absorb it all um as fast as you can because i always feel uh honestly like i'm playing catch up uh, which is great I, I am i do prefer to be the dumbest person in the room so i can learn faster and just gather as much information and make better informed decisions yeah well said and it's part of growing right it's, it's part mm -hmm. of developing so yeah uh, i i want to transition you you made a really nice post a few days ago on linkedin about uh debating between quality and quantity and just different things that different marketers and go-to-market team like leaders kind of say like this is the way to do it versus mm -hmm. this way uh, and what i loved about it is it, it's context versus content like what right. works for every different organization is not going to work for you so exactly what what i'd love to kick it off is uh, like sometimes i think it, what we debate is this art like this debate between art and science like when do you focus on things like brand and storytelling that are very hard to measure, which is the arts yep. versus like, let's focus on the KPIs and like performance marketing on the data. So a, how do you balance that? And, and more importantly, how do you balance this like context versus content and seeing what makes sense for your organization? Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that. Sorry. Yeah. Great question. Um, I think this goes back to that brand versus performance uh, piece that marketers have struggled with since the beginning of time. Um, and I don't really have a hard and fast framework for this. It's more like a philosophy. Uh, and this actually traces back to my days as a, um, an intern at Merrill Lynch. Um, so I originally wanted to go to school, or I did go to school for finance with a minor in marketing. Uh, but part of that journey was uh, I thought I wanted to be a trader. I was obsessed with like Warren Buffett and beating the street and all those great uh, type of books and people. Um, but part of the internship was my introduction to this uh, portfolio management strategy called core satellite. And, and it's basically anchored in this concept of keeping a solid core of stocks. So like this would be your uh, blue chip stocks that will continue to produce dividends for over a long period of time, very safe and solid stocks. Uh, the core would consist roughly of like 60% to 75% of your portfolio. Uh, but then there are the satellites, right? These are your, your racehorses, the more short-term bets. They produce bigger gains. Should be roughly 25 to 40% of your portfolio. The idea being is that if you mix them together, you have an optimal portfolio balance. <coughs> Excuse me. The reason I say this is because I view brand uh, and performance marketing in a similar way. Uh, it's, brand is kind of like your long-term growth lever and uh, your core while performance is more i think often focused on short-term gains and more closely associated with your satellites um and i think uh marketers must not they shouldn't only be aware of it but they should be actively working to optimize that mix to best suit the business goals if that makes sense like 
And unfortunately, I see a ton of companies and that was kind of what a little bit of that post was about. I see a, a ton of companies out there that are literally marketers are just 100% focused on performance marketing right now. There's, and it's, I think it's an absolute travesty. Like brand is how you differentiate. It's how you position. It's how you message. It's, it's so much more than just how you look and you feel. Um, it's the feeling that you give your prospects and your customers. And it's ultimately a driver of trust, which uh, that helps produce higher win rates, higher lifetime values, you name it. There's just so many long-term benefits there. And I want to use an example, right? So uh, my company, our, our two biggest competitors are Qualtrics and Medallia. Um, so for those of you that don't know, Qualtrics was bought out uh, by SAP for $5 million. Um, shout out to Ryan Smith. Uh, and uh, Medallia went public recently. And um, my company still goes head to head with these guys uh, on a weekly basis in deals. And we win um, often because we're literally David in a scenario uh, versus two Goliaths, right? Uh, and the reason I, I believe we continue to win is because we have an effective mix of brand and performance marketing, and it's driven by effective execution uh, that puts our values at the forefront and aligns with our target audience. And I think a huge part of being an effective brand these days is just taking a stand, right? We're not for everybody. We're specific to B2B companies and traditional industries that have large account bases, I care about retention and revenue growth. Uh, our expert level content, it speaks to that B2B audience, creates that trust, and pair that with good performance marketing execution you know, drive significant sales growth over the long and short term. Uh, so yeah. it really does come down to that mix for me. Yeah, no, I, I, it, it was very well communicated and very articulated. What, so, but where it takes me is actually like Mark Benioff's quotes, like in Behind the Cloud. I was actually just picking yeah. up, like rereading it where, like brands, one thing that's going to differentiate us moving forward, like everything else is people are going to catch up to each other fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. So uh, look, I'm very tactical and I, I learned through like story. So like, give us an example of this. And, and when do you think the job of marketing end? Like, when does it start? When does it end? Like, wh what's your take there? And just give us some examples just so we can visualize it. Yeah, I love this uh, question because I don't think marketing's job ever really stops. I, I think you, you're in charge of the first touch the first impression. And I think it carries throughout the sales cycle. It carries into the third funnel, which is the customer funnel. Uh, it literally, it does not stop. You are constant watch. You're, you're the, the voice of the brand. And I think we've done this a couple different ways. Um, and, and I do actually just circling back to that Mark Benioff quote, I do think brand is kind of the future. So I, I just want to touch on that one second before we get into the tactical. I think especially with like this current global situation, marketers that haven't pivoted towards brand uh, already are behind the eight ball. Like people will come out of this crisis wanting to do business with brands that have vision and purpose. They're, the days of dropping 100K on Facebook ads to grow quickly, uh, are, it's not gonna cut it anymore. And I think the practitioners out there uh, that don't realize this, I mean, the marketing uh, field has evolved already and the future is brand. Uh, and even for these smaller startups, if you lead with brand, lead with value, that's your long-term lever. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to put that out there because I think that's, especially right now, things have changed uh, pretty rapidly, um, at least in my view. But so tactically, I think back to the, the question of where does marketing's job start and end? I think, I don't believe it really ends, as I said. And for example, one tactical thing that we do, um, for uh, when we're in a sales situation, right? Um, and we have uh, a proposal we need to send a client. Um, and this is one of those things that we've done 
we stumbled across it through just a bunch of different tests and journey mapping and things like that, touch point analysis. The proposal matters way more than anybody ever imagines. And what I mean by that is this proposal that you send over that says, hey, this is what we're proposing you buy from us and this is kind of what you get. Um, salespeople probably are talking to two to three people, maybe four, but uh, there's a couple stats out there that show, you know, on average, a sales cycle uh, or a sales B2B sale needs like six to eight to even 10 people to sign off on it before it gets actually signed or inked. Um, so one of the levers we pull from the brand side of things is make this proposal a massive brand statement. And what I mean by that is it's like, it's branded. It looks like us. It has a emotional intro from the CEO it talks about our team and kind of our experience. It talks about our product. It talks about our values, our mission statement, our diversity statement, what we care about, what we stand for as an organization. Um, and I think that is a very underestimated piece of brand marketing that a lot of B2B practitioners uh, could be utilizing because this thing gets kicked around not only to your champion or your executive sponsor, but it might get kicked up to the CEO. It might get kicked up to the CMO or any other department that this product that they're buying will affect. This is probably what they'll send. Um, and that branded piece has doubled our win rate um, since launching. But I think, again, it's just worth reiterating that this is your selling point. This is your big brand piece that you can send to these companies and they can kick around and say, this is why we're doing it. This is why we're buying it. And here's the dotted line you can sign right on the same exact document. That's a powerful thing. Absolutely. It personalizes it a little, right? And yeah, I, I, whether you're charging something or you're not, like it just allows you to kind of go, go through that. The, the part that you brought up, which is really interesting, which is uh, around like marketing job never stops. It continues still kind of to the end. What's your take if marketing should be measured, like most companies I've been a part of, they, they usually are measured by MQLs, right? Yeah. That's the KPI. Like, mm -hmm. do you agree with that? Or do you think maybe the incentive should be changed so there's more skin in the game to make sure they're involved throughout the whole sales process? Yeah, great question. And this is being pretty highly debated on LinkedIn right now. I think a lot of the marketers are seeing the light here. Um, and uh, one of them is Chris Walker. I think he's kind of leading the charge. But I would, I would say that marketers should start to transition to being measured on revenue or, or generated marketing-based pipeline. Um, I think MQLs are important. Uh, it's, it's kind of a good indicator of daily, monthly activity. And marketing teams should monitor these KPIs. But I don't think that's what you report up to the business levels, the CEO. Um, and one of our biggest... Uh, I think positioning statements for our company is that um, CEOs and C-level people care about revenue. That's literally, for the most part, the main thing they care about. And I think the big disconnect for these CX companies is that they, they're reporting on health scores or renewal rates. Um, and we're basically shouting at the top of our lungs, like that doesn't matter. We're lead with revenue. Like get yourself in a position where you can say this experience program has generated revenue and then your CEO will care, be interested and want to learn more. I think it's similar for marketers, like lead with revenue, tell your CEO, this is how much pipeline marketing is generated. This is what it converts at. This is the sales cycle. This is this, the CAC, this is the ACV. Um, that type of thing is powerful when you can make that transition and say, 
you know, marketing, this specific campaign has generated this much pipeline. We expect it to close at this rate in this many amount, in this many amount of days. Um, I think that's where the market's going. I think that's where marketers should be heading if you're not already. But I do think MQL has a purpose in this world. I just don't know if it's a, a business level metric anymore. Okay, well, communicate it. I, I, it gives me ammo, right? Yeah. At the same time, it aligns us and, and vice versa, right? I think sometimes it's not only the marketing's jobs to source MQLs or leads right. it's, and sales should have some skin in the game as well. So mm -hmm. uh, look, this has been a really good episode and we can probably continue on and on. Uh, but the one question I missed is, how did you get into marketing in the first place? <laughs> oh, yeah, great question. So I'll give you the real quick overview. Um, yeah. After I graduated college, I moved, uh, I met my girlfriend and now wife. Uh, she got accepted into UVM for a PhD program. And that was pretty far away from my, my college. So my network didn't extend that far. So there I was with a finance degree. I thought I wanted to go into finance. So I had to like kind of just make things happen. So I did what I thought was the right thing to do, which is, you know, package up this, this branded packet about myself and what I can add to a, a company value-wise sent out these direct mail packages, um, got a response back from Merrill Lynch. Long story short, that was when Bear Stearns crashed. I was there as an intern, you know, unpaid for 40 hours a week. Um, and I, I just saw a lot of things that I wasn't really uh, too happy about. So I made kind of an assessment and saying, what do I really enjoy? And believe it or not, I came back to that initial like process of trying to get the job by marketing myself. And I was like, hey, I want to kind of focus on that. Um, so that was kind of the impetus for me to really focus my next job on marketing. Um, and then from there, it was just kind of lights out. It's been marketing ever since. Yeah. And it's a great illustration of what we discussed earlier. If you want something, go get it. So yeah. if you're being proactive, it's, it's crucial because look right now, like there are companies hiring and yep. I'm, I'm actually shocked how, uh, like creative, some candidates don't get right. Like I you, know. you, it's marketing one-on-one, -on -one, right? You want to stand yeah. out, you want to differentiate yourself. And going through the regular processes sometimes, uh, you got to do the unconventional things. So, Same thing in marketing. Yeah, yeah. You stand out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, you've listened to the show. So the next part of the show is what we call the lighting round. I call it the famous three because it's yeah. I, I learned to ask the same three questions. So what is one thing you wish you had known before you got into X? X can be the working environment. It could be customer gouge. It could be marketing. Like, what is that one thing for you? Sure. Um, I think I wish I knew uh, how important persuasion and sales is. So I, again, I come from like a non-tech background. So I had to learn all this stuff on, on the job, right? Um, and I, I just assumed that if I had a good idea and it was a logical idea that everybody would buy into this thing, right? And it would just be no questions asked, boom, here's your budget, go make it happen. And that is just not the case in any company. Uh, you need to sell your idea. You need to persuade people. You need to really get people on your side. And uh, I found the best way to do that is through storytelling analogies, things like that. But um, I, it, that took me a little bit to learn where, um, you know, I just assumed everybody thought like me and could see the value and that it would just be a no brainer. But yeah, sales, um, so, so, so important in this world. Yeah. And it uh, blows my mind. I had no sales classes or anything in college, but I was doing it on the side. And then you graduate yeah. and, and you realize one third of your graduating class or something, if you're in business school, goes into a sales role. Yeah. So, uh, well communicated. Uh, what is 
uh, from your experience, what is that one experience or book or something that's guided you uh, over the last couple of years that you really want the audience to maybe like get attention to? Yeah. So I'm going to flip that a little bit. Um, because again, back to my background, right? I'm not super in the tech scene. I am now, but I, I had a really great mentor, um, which was uh, my uncle Yanni. So he's kind of like one of those old OG guys that was um, VP of sales and marketing at Sun Microsystems. So that, that's my connection to San Francisco and kind of the tech scene. And he was just an amazing mentor. So, and he's still, I still talk to him often. Um, and he's really put me on this path of like, this is how you do with this scenario. This is how you do with that scenario. And he's, he's given me so much insight into, you know, marketing technology and properly uh, positioning uh, messaging and just sales and channel development, things like that. I think um, that experience has done almost more for me than um, a lot of other things I can think of just because he put me on that trajectory to, to really diving into this tech thing and, and learning it to the best of my ability. Yeah, I, I support a company called Plato on the side uh, where they, they have a mentorship platform for mm -hmm. technical leaders for the most part. So it's music to my ears because we've all had somebody, whether it's a family member or a friend or whatever, have given us yeah. opportunities that we don't deserve. So uh, good for Uncle Yanni, and I appreciate you for calling <laughs> that out. Yeah. Uh, my, my favorite question, uh, and I just learned from Patrick at ProfitWell that it's a Peter Thiel question, but what is one thing that you believe to be true that a majority of people will probably disagree with you on? Oh, okay. Um, this is going to pay me as a crazy person. Just disclaimer. Okay. So I think um, most people think that uh, solving global hunger uh, in the world will be solved by kind of increasing agricultural production. Um, but I think that the way population is going, it's going to, uh, we're not going to be able to sustain uh, the agricultural production needed to sustain the population. Um, so what I believe will actually happen is we'll innovate, uh, which is kind of what always happens when we have a problem. Um, and this next part's kind of crazy. And, and I know it's crazy and I know it's going to sound crazy, but if you told me we'd be colonizing Mars in 10 years, I would probably think, you know, 15 years ago, that's also crazy. But I think there's a good shot at that. Um, so here it is. I, I think that we'll figure out how to, uh, clone food within like the next 40 or 60 years. Um, so what I mean by that is like, we're already developing food in labs and I, and I'm not talking about like GMO style cloning. I think it's going to be something like almost like a carbon copy, a photocopy of food. Um, it sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy, but the, just how quickly technology is developing. I think that, um, if the problem is bad enough, we'll figure out a way as a world to, uh, to solve it. And I think that's one of those things that could potentially happen in the next 40 or 60 years. I don't know much about it, but I don't think you're crazy. I'll, I'll say that. Appreciate but, that. <laughs> yeah. Just, the, just the way science goes, it, it's no problem. It, Ian, this has been one of the most thoughtful, uh, episodes that I've been a part of where I've learned a lot just being on the other side. So can't thank you enough for joining us as well as dropping your knowledge and context and wisdom. I, I love for the audience, if they want to get in touch with you, like, are you open to that? And what's the best way? Absolutely. Hit me up on LinkedIn, Ian Luck, I-N-L-U-C-K, like good luck. Love All right. That's, that's perfect. Thanks so much. Have a good rest of your day and, and I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Boya. Bye. Bye. Helps engineers and engineering managers become great leaders. 
And how do they do that? Well, Plato helps you find the perfect mentor thanks to its network of experienced engineering leaders who work at the world's best tech companies. For a monthly fee, you have unlimited access to mentors who can help when you have challenging situations as a manager. Visit them at PlatoHQ.com.